0: Good morning, if you brought your copy of God's Word with you, I'm going to ask you to open to the Gospel of Matthew, we're continuing in this book we've just begun and we find ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter 2. Try this one more time. see if I can extend this. Looks like that's all we've got this morning is a smaller version. This. Matt's giving me instructions here on how to try to manage this. Well, can y'all see this? This is best I got this morning. But for Matthew chapter two. What we're going to see in our passage this morning is how Matthew is still going to be building on the theme of showing Jesus to be the rightful messianic king of the Jews. In chapter 1, we saw this in in two different ways primarily. You perhaps remember from the first section there in Matthew chapter 1 dealing with the genealogy, Matthew shows How Jesus was of the right genealogy to be that Messiah King as in that he was both the son of David and the son of Abraham. And as such, he was the fulfillment of a Davidic covenant and a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And we also saw from chapter 1 last week, as Pastor Matt preached there, Matthew showed how Jesus was the son of God that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born to a virgin, um, again, in fulfillment of predictive prophecy, as would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in Jesus, as would be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in Jesus, and that Jesus was to be, ma- na- to be named Emmanuel, which it says is translated, God with us. So in chapter 2 now, beginning this morning, we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2, Matthew gives three additional evidences of Jesus' legitimate claim to the throne of David. Now, I just wanted to kind of get out of the way at the very beginning of this, what it seems to me to be one of the primary, if not a significant primary, applicational point for each of us. A lot of times we come to the text and we're looking for that particular application. Well, as Matthew is waxing so eloquently and demonstrating very clearly that Jesus is the long-awaited, fulfilled prophecy of Old Testament and that he is of the right lineage and he fulfilled a Davidic covenant and an Abrahamic covenant and he's the very son of God. He's establishing him as king and he's going to be calling, here in our passage this morning, he's going to be called the king of the Jews. But we also know that He came to be king of our hearts. And so as we continue to observe how Matthew is making the case, he's making the case primarily for his Jewish brethren, but also for anybody who would be inclined to read his good news account of who this Jesus was. He's establishing Jesus to be the king from heaven who is worthy of our allegiance. And so as we make our way through the passage this morning, an ongoing thought we ought to have at the conclusion of each little section is, am I still seeking him as these wise men also did? Do I have a proper place for Christ in my heart where I have a glad submission to him? Because if he's truly the king from heaven who's come to earth, as Matthew claims, as all the gospels claim, as the New Testament claims, As the Old Testament claims, have I allowed him to have that place in my life, his kingship over my life, and am I in submission to this king? I think if you really boil it down, that's a pretty significant application, isn't it? Are we kind of living as free agents out here? I believe in Jesus, but I still kind of want to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, and when I want to do it. I still want to have the ultimate say and the ultimate control of my life. Well, these disciples, when Jesus called them, it says they left everything behind, occupations, families, friends, and they followed this man from Galilee. Jesus said very radical things, and eventually we're going to get into the teaching of the king. He said very radical things that if you're unwilling to lose your life now, in this world and find it in him, then ultimately you're going to lose your life at the end of the age. He says some very radical things with regard to our allegiance to him and to his lordship. And Matthew's laying out a very clear case for the lordship of Christ our King. Amen? So let's let that sink in as we continue to look kind of at a bird's eye view down on this, on this gospel from the genealogy, he is the rightful king. From, from the virgin birth, he came in fulfillment of prophecy, just like they said. And as we're going to see here this morning, God did some pretty miraculous and particular things to, again, give evidences of this. And the first thing we're going to see from verses 1 through 12 this morning is that of the testimony of the Magi who came from great lengths to render gifts and worship to this Jesus, the one they claimed to be the rightful king of the Jews. Secondly, we're going to see the testimony from Herod. And albeit it's somewhat of a negative testimony, Herod, who upon hearing that there had been one born who was to be the king of the Jews after having Clarifying questions I can only imagine with the magi who showed up from the east, delivers a scheme in order to find out the whereabouts of this newborn king for the purpose of destroying him. So Herod, although a negative example, gives an example of someone who absolutely believed the testimony that Jesus was the new king from heaven. And thirdly, we see again this evidence through the fulfillment of predictive prophecy, um, when trying to ascertain the um, location, particularly, of where this king would be born, uh, without hesitation, the, the scribes, the chief priests, those political and spiritual leaders of the people of Israel knew immediately from Micah 5.2 that he was to be born in Bethlehem, and Matthew embeds that Micah five two passage here as evidence again that Jesus is the one who came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that he is the rightful has a rightful claim to the, to be the Messianic King that he did make over his three years of public ministry. Jesus just, I mean, Matthew is just at the very beginning of laying out that case, and so these are three things that we're going to see definitively. And then at the end of our passage this morning, it also seems. Uh, that God providentially ordained such gifts from these magi that they present to this king of a story. Of a story of a king who came from heaven and who was born to die for a very particular purpose. So it seems within the gifts that God sovereignly ordained that they brought King Jesus as a young boy, there's a story of the gospel embedded therein. Well, let's take a look at these first two verses. Look at verses 1 and 2 from Matthew chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Bethlehem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, the first thing it seems that we perhaps need to deal with here is, Who are these Magi from the east? Well, let me assure you that this issue of who the Magi are is a very complex issue a very complex issue indeed, yet many historians seem to consider that these magi perhaps would have been of Semitic um, descent, which if true perhaps would mean that they were of uh, Noah's descendants from his son Shem and would have some connections obviously to the Jews and or the Arabs in that case. And I read a a couple of different commentaries on this, and they went into some great detailed and and some very lengthy uh, diatribes on trying to ascertain the complex growth of the Magi from the East. However, my purpose this morning isn't to try to unravel this historical tapestry of the Magi, but rather to indicate that they were used by God in a very particular way to demonstrate the, ver- the veracity and the reality of Christ, the newborn king. But one of the things that we can observe very easily about these magi is that by the time of the Babylonian Empire, you remember the Babylonian Empire, we just finished the book of Daniel, right? i have got some charts remind you of, of <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's dream. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That by the time of the Babylonian Empire, the, these magi had become some of the most prominent and powerful people within the uh, societal construct of the day. We see there in Daniel chapter 2, after Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, and he's seeking understanding. But he says that not only does he want an understanding of his dream, he wants his wise men to tell him both the dream and its interpretation, right? And so who do we see present whenever he brings in the wise men of his kingdom to try to ascertain said information we see the magi so the magi are are very present they have a very uh, particular place within that kingdom and of service to king nebuchadnezzar he was one they were a a group of counselors that supplied wisdom and insight and counsel to kings not only for Nebuchadnezzar but perhaps in some of the surrounding regions as well there was a school of magi and they went through training and as such they went through great learning to ascertain the title of being part of magi and so we see these magi very clearly playing a prominent role with king Nebuchadnezzar and if you recall these magi, the wise men of Babylon, were unable to pro, to provide for Nebuchadnezzar his desired request of what is my dream and what is the interpretation. And they tried to squirm their way out of this. You remember that? King, you're asking something that no magician or conjurer or sorcerer anywhere has ever had to do. So they were working really hard, and Nebuchadnezzar got to the point where he said enough's enough, and he sent to have their lives ended. Recall that? And then God inserts... Daniel. Thank you. Yeah, Daniel. Then I, God inserts Daniel. And what does Daniel do? Daniel shows up and, if you will, by the power of God and the miraculous intervention of God, Daniel saves the day. And Daniel is able to show up and give not only what the dream is, but also the interpretation of what that dream was. And he spares the life of all the wise men, the magi, the sorcerers, the conjurers within Babylon. And it says of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2:48 that he was appointed as quote ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men, magi of Babylon. It, needless to say, but don't you think it reasonable that Daniel became highly regarded among the Magi, I think it's it's not only very reasonable, I think it's the only potential conclusion that we could come to. And if that wasn't enough, I mean, so on that occasion, Daniel steps in, provides the needed information, spares their lives. If that wasn't enough for the Magi to really have a sense of great curiosity about this man, Daniel, and not only about this man, Daniel, about, but about this man's God, the God that he clearly said has his ability to do this has nothing to do with me but everything to do with my God. These magi, being wise men, they studied all sorts of... They, they studied anything they could get their hands on. I have a strong hunch, and I think the passage this morning in Matthew indicates that they became very fascinated not only with Daniel but also with Daniel's God and the scriptures of the Old Testament. Daniel was indeed, it seems, highly regarded. And again, if that wasn't enough, there was the uh, incident with um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. I think that that would have caught the Magi's attention as well. How about you? That God that did this for Daniel did this same thing for his three buddies. And then later, it wasn't too far down the line in history, we see the situation with Daniel, a lion's den, magi there observing, and they're saying, man, the God that did this, that saved the three, and now has just spared Daniel's life from the lion. I think that God Almighty used Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a very particular way for a very particular purpose. All those many hundreds of years ago, in order, as we're going to see, in our text this morning, in order that he could provide, you ready for it, a cosmic sign to happen in the sky for the purpose of leading said magi to Jesus. What do you think about those idols? You see why we need to be considering where are we at with regard to our glad submission to the kingship of Jesus? (laughs) That we're not just down here to do things my way, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, if I want to do it. We're down here and we're supposed to be saying, Lord, here am I. Send me. How do you want to use me? My days have been numbered and they're short. How do I know? Because I've been reading the book. Daniel had his nose in the book. It seems these Magi probably had got their nose in as many copies of the Old Testament. They could probably scurry up themselves. Started probably got a copy of Isaiah. Probably that Remember Daniel had his nose in Jeremiah. Hey Daniel can we we borrow your copy and could you teach us these things? It seems to me that Daniel's influence over the Magi is oftentimes understated. But here in Matthew 2 seems to be one of the most obvious connections that there could be now let's get our nose back in the text here because one of the things that these magi do when they show up is they say some things and notice what they're looking for now after let's look at verse one again After, so it's after the fact, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying. It seems from the end of verse 1 and just the construction of the sentence here that they're saying what would have been the idea. They didn't just kind of show up and go to one or two particular people and say, hey, we've shown up here kind of privately. We want to know, do you know this? the magi coming from the east probably arrived with a fairly large entourage they came from a very far distance the, the magi were very powerful and political people they were wealthy people they probably showed up with a very large caravan they probably had servants that came with them um, and sometimes they wrongly get referred to as being you know kings we three kings of orientar that song has got it's rife with all kinds of problems But nonetheless, they were very wealthy. And so a large entourage would have shown up in Jerusalem. And they go into Jerusalem saying, it seems that they just start kind of scouring about all of Jerusalem. Asking anybody and everybody who might have knowledge of where this said king would have been born. Certainly you would have known. We heard about him from long ago. We had, we, we've heard from word of mouth and it's been passed down from long ago of one of your people. His name was Daniel. And he even wrote a book and we've read his book. We've gone back and forth and tried to understand and ascertain knowledge from his book. And we know that there's going to be a king, an eternal king, that's going to be born to Daniel's people. We know this is true because... The God that gave Daniel, your your guy Daniel, that revelation is the same God who did miraculous things that no God has ever done or could do. So we started studying about your your King, and we've come to. This To discover him. We've been led here by your God. Now the interesting thing is is we have zero information with regard to the communication that God had with these magi. With regard to the cosmic sign that he gave them called this star that they followed to get them to Jerusalem. We don't have any of that information at all. But what what do we have? Well we have Matthew 2.1. That after Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. Magi from the east. What did they do? They arrived. They arrive, saying, verse 2, where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? Where did they get this information? For we saw his star in the east and have come to, notice, worship. What would lead these magi to leave a distant land to travel a really long distant, a a great amount of, this is going to take, this journey is a very lengthy journey in order to come and worship one who was born king of the Jews, if they hadn't been given some kind of sign by God to follow that star, I'm going to take you to this star because in Daniel 2, 4, 7, 9, and 12, you've read, and you've probably also read in some of the other books that Daniel taught you from, that a king is coming through Daniel's people, and God somehow communicated to them that that time had come placed the star in the heavens and said, follow that star and I'm going to get you to where he's at. All we know is that they showed up looking for said king to worship. Isn't that fascinating? And oftentimes we just kind of read Matthew 2, 1 through 2, and we just blow by and go into verse 3, give it very little consideration whatsoever. There's a, there is so much depth even in just these passages. I could just pray and say amen. We could go and we could contemplate this. And let this sink in. Let the, the reality of just how God's word is this majestic tapestry. Uh, majestic poetry. That fits together like a hand in a glove. And he has allowed no detail to go unnoticed. And he gives us just exactly what we need. To put us on the scent, as Matthew is doing here in his gospel, that Jesus is of the right genealogy. He's a, a miraculous virgin birth, and he's this king that God implanted in the minds of magi some six to seven hundred years prior to his birth. And those magi have been studying and studying and looking and going back and forth, as it says in Daniel chapter 12, trying to ascertain and glean more knowledge, and somehow God shows up and he says, I'm going to give you a cosmic sign, a star. Follow that star. It will take you to this man, this king who will establish a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever, which, by the way, hopefully whets our whistle for the, the end of this little section right here of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh used when it's mixed with certain spices as a, as, a, as a burial ointment. So you got from the gold from the king to the burial ointment of the myrrh. And think about these magi. They had read, but they didn't have the chapters and number break. We call it Daniel chapter 9 verse 26. They knew that Messiah was going to be cut off and have nothing they knew that messiah this eternal king could they play could they piece all of this together i don't know we're piecing it together we have new testament revelation thankfully we've got the book of revelation and we've got the apostle paul and we've got some new testament revelation that helps us fill in some of the gaps what did they know we don't know because we know the church age was a mystery in the old testament that's what clearly the apostle paul says in ephesians chapter three without question they had gaps that they didn't have filled in but god used them in a very particular way in the fulfillment of the right time that jesus showed up and these are the these are the marvelously beautiful things that Matthew is using to again demonstrate who Jesus Christ actually is. Well, let me just ask you, is he um, is he king of your heart? Because without question he's king of the world. All authority and power was given to him in both heaven and on earth. And here we see in the Beautiful tapestry of God's word, how this is woven together so beautifully and so terrifyingly as well. Where am I? I just got lost in it, y'all. I'm truly, I am truly overwhelmed at the beauty and the majesty of the word of God. And how this fits together like a hand in a glove. It's terrifyingly beautiful. Without question. Well, secondly, we're going to see Matthew evidenced through Herod. Again, albeit in a negative way. That Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. Notice in verse 3. It says, when Herod the king heard this. He was troubled. Now, when we hit right here in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, we sometimes just assume, well, what Herod the, Herod the king heard was that that they had seen his star and they had come to worship him. The one that the Magi were saying was born king and king of the Jews. Well, Herod was made ruler over the Jewish nation by uh, Rome, Caesar Augustus, a title, I think, that was given to Octavian at that time, and so he obviously would have had interest and concern about anybody that was going to tr- perhaps be a usurper of his rule and his, uh, his power and the wealth that came from that, and Herod was a very uh, violent person. There was, um, he killed many within his own family. And he destroyed lots of people who got in his way. Lots of people who got in his way. So when Herod the king heard this, it says that he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And it seems to me that the the this that Herod heard wasn't just simply this. I don't think that Herod heard the scuttlebutt around Jerusalem that these magi with this large entourage that's shown up and they're asking anybody and everybody, hey, where's the, the newborn king of the Jews? Your God showed us a star, told us to follow the star. We've heard about him. He's The knowledge of him has been passed down for hundreds of years and through your prophet Daniel, and we know that he's going to establish an eternal kingdom, but we also know that he's going to be cut off and have nothing. We don't know how to piece all this together, but we're here to worship this guy I have a feeling that Herod probably had some clarifying questions for these magi. What do you think? Are we given what the clarifying questions were? Absolutely not. But I think it would go without question that Herod had some clarifying questions with regard to this knowledge. What star? Who told you there was going to be a star? A king of the Jews? Where did you get knowledge that there was going to be a king that was born to the Jews, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. He probably had some clarifying questions. And when he heard these things, he was certainly troubled. And the, the, the troubled here um, that he has is troubled in a sense that he is probably in a bit of a, a, a place of panic and of delusionment. And it seems to be implied when it says, and all Jerusalem with him. Because those in Jerusalem with him, and primarily that would be making reference to verse 4, these chief priests and the scribes, those that Herod had given some tacit responsibilities to, I mean, if you think about a chief priest, within the chief priest would have been the high priest. Within this chief priestly line, there would have been one of those, uh, the leader of the chief priests would have been the high priest. And according to the Old Testament, the high priest was a descendant of Aaron who held his position for the duration of his life until he died, but not while Herod was king. Herod removed high priests who he didn't like and, and didn't... Favor, and he replaced certain high priests with other high priests at his own desiring. We see this in like Luke's gospel uh, very plainly. So the chief priest and the scribes of the people were very troubled about this knowledge as well. Now we're going to see that they had intimate knowledge that yes, there was going to be a ruler that was going to come from Bethlehem, and immediately in verse 5, when we get there, they're going to take they're going to take Herod right to the Old Testament scripture of fulfillment, of, of, where, of where the Old Testament says that this king or this ruler was going to come from. But one of the reasons they're perhaps troubled is, is they knew that they could not get on the bad side of Herod without it perhaps costing them and their family's life. Sometimes we get, r- potentially, potentially we can get a bit overly horrible harsh and critical of said chief priests and scribes because what's wrong with these people can't they just get it don't they see that this Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be and sometimes we fail to walk at least two steps in their shoes to realize that if they went against Herod in any form or fashion at all it was probably going to cost them their life I mean Herod had his own wife killed he had three of his own children killed he had his mother-in-law killed I was doing some reading on Herod the Great. There's a long list of individuals that he had killed. As a matter of fact, towards the end of his life, he knew that the people that he knew that the Jewish nation did not like him. And in order for there to be mourning upon the time of his death, he had the chief priests, the scribes, who he had given authority to kind of have a police state and to arrest in violation of said laws, and then they could make up false witnesses to say, you violated said Jewish code, and then they could arrest you. He had the, the, the leading prominent families of Jerusalem arrested, put in prison, and orders were given that on the day of his death, they were to murder them so that there would be genuine mourning going on throughout the land upon his death, and that people might wrongly perceive that that mourning was for him. Herod is not a nice guy and so all of Jerusalem is troubled with him I think comes with a very simple observation that they knew that if they stood against this man in any way it could cost them greatly. Are you following me? So, again, sometimes we need to walk a little bit in the shoes. Man, those Pharisees, man, they're just a bunch of Pharisees. They're just hypocritical, legalistic, and they they were, okay? But at the same time, when you recognize some of the the, the hardships and strife they went through, um, perhaps in your saying, well, they should should just be like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Just take your stand, be willing to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Amen? And then we look at ourselves sometimes in the mirror and we are like, okay, come on, Averitt. Why are you still struggling with some of the basic stuff? Why can't you get yourself out of bed 10 minutes early just to spend time in the Word of God because wise men still seek Him? These men traveled hundreds of miles to see this star that God put in the sky because of this man, Daniel, and we could rehearse all that. Come on, Avery, can't you get yourself out of bed and pray for 10 minutes every morning? And so, I'm just saying, we, the realness of this uh, does have some application for us as well today. Amen? Amen. Okay, good, enough of that. I'm starting, to feel, I'm starting to feel really weighed down up here. I don't know about you. Whew, okay, but I, I feel better now. Uh, I hope that you get to feeling better soon as well. So, Herod is troubled, and when it says troubled, it means troubled, capital troubled. He is in a panic, and he gathers chief priests, scribes, those who would know the the law of God, the word of God. This is what's been said. I ascertain this. Inform- he gathers them, and he's inquiring of them, "Where is?" And notice what he says. He translates it from the king of the Jews. How does Herod translate that after his clarifying questions with the Magi? He translates that down to where is the Messiah? Daniel 9.26 says that Messiah is going to be cut off and have nothing. I don't know factually if they articulated that to Herod or not. But what we do see is that Herod translates king down to Messiah, and we know that the long-awaited Messiah king from Old Testament prophecy is Jesus, and he's the fulfillment of these things, as Matthew has been showing in chapter 1. He's got the right genealogy. Chapter 2 is born of the Virgin Mary in fulfillment of predictive prophecy, and here and again in chapter 2, showing us some of these same things. Where is he to be born? And they said to him, verse 5, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We're going to come back to this passage in just a second. It's my third point, predictive prophecy, one of Matthew's Proofs that Jesus was who he claimed to be. I want to continue just quickly in verse 7 and showing you the, the validation and the response from Herod. Notice what he says. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So he's he is finished with the chief priest and the Magi. He's gathered the one piece of information that he needed. Yes, there's going to be a ruler who's going to shepherd your people. Micah 5, 2, and it says from Bethlehem. So he secretly, meaning privately, goes back to the Magi and has more conversation with them and tries to exact from them the time that that cosmic sign, that star, appeared in the sky that led them from the east all the way to Jerusalem. And he sent them, verse 8, to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and... Worship him. Are you feeling the sincerity of that? Well, you know the story without question. Herod is secretly trying to ascertain information with regard to this child so that he can have him executed quietly. And unfortunately, as we're going to find out in next week, we can begin the latter half of chapter two, that um, the Magi hear a word from God again. Somehow, again, God has a way of communicating with them through dreams. As he did with Nebuchadnezzar and the likes. And so they go back a different way. And they ignore Herod altogether. And so he has a great slaughter of the children. The male children in Bethlehem in the vicinity from two years old and under. So he's he's a bad dude. Go and search carefully that I too may come and worship him. So. Through this negative response of Herod and his actions and desires to have this child removed from the scene, Herod is an example and a proof of the validity that Jesus was the rightful king of the Jews who showed up at just the right time according to the scriptures. Herod isn't questioning them at all. Herod didn't say, man, you guys are out of your mind. You don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean you listen to Dan... What, just pack up and you need to leave. No, Herod took their word extremely seriously and acted on it. Now, thirdly, a third way that Matthew shows this to be um, true of Jesus being the long-awaited Messiah King and coming in the fulfillment of time is, again, through predictive prophecy. And so we're going to backtrack here quickly to verses 4 through 6. We've read this, but notice this again. Whenever he gathered the chief priests and the scribes, Ascertain from them, this is Herod. He gathers them and he's inquiring of them where the Messiah was to be born. They, without hesitation, reply to him, it seems, in the way Matthew has recorded this, with one prophet. And that would be from Micah 5:2, that says, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the prophecy of Micah 5.2, the prophecy of Micah 5.2, according to Matthew, was fulfilled at the birth of Christ. And thus was used here by Matthew to demonstrate it conclusively uh, as he's trying to convince his brethren, the Jewish people, and all people everywhere that Jesus was the rightful prophesied Messiah King who was indeed born the King of the Jews in keeping with the Word of God. Are you feeling it? Matthew? Matthew's not playing around here, is he? Matthew is like, he, he's got a straight a straight arrow and he is and he is he is shooting that right through the heart. He leaves zero wiggle room with regard to who this Jesus is. Zero. Now, the end of this passage from 9 through 12, it seems that Matthew paints some sort of word pictures for us with the usage of the providential gifts that God had these magi bring, again, perhaps showing uh, an understanding of that Daniel 9, 6 passage, that from, again, from Daniel 4, 2, and 4, and 7, and 9, but in 9, 6, so it talks about this, this coming kingdom that's going to come from heaven, it's a, it's a heavenward kingdom, it's a kingdom that's going to come from heaven and it's going to endure forever and ever and ever. And, um, and then when you get to chapter 9, verse 26, you see that this Messiah is going to be cut off. And that was some very difficult information for the Jews to understand. Because, again, the, the coming of this king from Herod's standpoint and even from the point of the Jews, they weren't anticipating that this king that showed up that they're talking about, they weren't anticipating that this is a soul-saving king. They're anticipating that this is going to be a king that's going to show up on the earth and establish his kingdom on planet earth overthrow the Roman government, perhaps in keeping with Daniel 9-2 and maybe the way they were understanding the the flow of human history from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then after Rome in the days of these kings, there's going to be another. Perhaps, I'm just throwing it back out there. I've got a really cool chart. Ready? No, I'm just kidding. But without question, without question, um, (laughs) these magi... Uh, under God's sovereignty and providence brought gifts that would seem to, to paint this beautiful picture in tapestry of a heaven-bound king who was going to be cut off. Let me show you this. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came, the star it came, and stood over the place where the child was. Now, just I'm going to insert this real fast. It seems, when you read the text, it seems that the star, that cosmic sign, led them to Jerusalem and then just kind of vanished. It just seems that way. It gets them to Jerusalem, and they just start asking everybody in Jerusalem, hey, where's the king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews? Herod gets involved. There's, where's the king of the Jews? We, we saw a star from the east. And it brought us right here. Herod's like, hmm, let me ask you some questions, question, question, question. I'll get back with you. Chief priests and magi, <clears throat> where in the scriptures does it say Messiah, the king's going to be born? Bethlehem. Thank you very much. Hey, it looks like it's going to be in Bethlehem. Would you go there and find out? I, too, want to come and worship with you guys. And so they take off to Bethlehem, and then all of a sudden the star reappears. This cosmic sign just kind of appears again, and it seems, it says, which they had seen in the east, went before them until it came and stood over the place, meaning the very house that the child was. It's what the text seems to very clearly indicate. star led them to Jerusalem, kind of went away. Question, question, question. They start heading to Bethlehem in fulfillment of Micah 5.2. star again, and it's right over this house in Bethlehem. And it leads them right there. And when they saw the star, verse 10... Again, the one that leads them right to the house, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy because Yahweh, the God of Daniel, has been prospering their way. And yet again, that star that we were seeing that vanished and went away, here it is again. They're rejoicing exceedingly with great joy because they know in the house that that star is right over is the one that they've been reading about for years and years and years and years. A king from Daniel's people who's going to establish a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. And they're rejoicing exceedingly because they went apart of said kingdom. They've come to worship. And after coming into the house, verse 11, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped her. Wait a second. What? Man, if there's ever going to be a great time for the deification of Mary, this is it. It's not in the text anywhere. Never has been, never will be. They worshipped him. They fell to the ground. They went right to the ground, hands out probably, kneeled down to the ground, and they're worshipping probably a young lad who's two years old at this point in time. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And now while there are three gifts that come from their treasures, plural. We have no knowledge that there were three wise men. We have no knowledge that there were three magi. There could have been a myriad of them. It doesn't give us any number with regard to how many. But the three gifts that were brought indeed that came from their treasures were that of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And again, gold would have been a gift indicating without question, the very royalty of a king. And here's they've come to worship a king, a king who's going to have a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. And they present to this king gold because Jesus is of a regal lineage. As we saw earlier in chapter one, he's of the house of David and will sit on David's throne forever and ever. He's a rightful king. And so they present for him gold. And then frankincense. Frankincense seems to be a spice, a very expensive spice that was used in a lot of ways. But in the in this case with Jesus, it would seem that it's used in the sense and in the essence of his deity of the, the, the obedience of the peoples being due to this one king, that he is indeed the king of kings, the king from heaven. And then that of myrrh. And as I mentioned earlier, myrrh would have been that which clearly articulated the humanity of Jesus. Myrrh was used in Jesus's death. He was uh, an alabaster of myrrh was poured upon him for his burial. And so in accordance with Daniel in his prophecy, you've got a king who comes from heaven, the rock from heaven, but then they also discovered that he's going to be cut off and have nothing. And perhaps, perhaps, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, but perhaps. Within the the gifts themselves, God has embedded the mystery of that gospel that the God-man from heaven, the God of heaven himself, deity of deities, but humanity of humanities, came to die. Perhaps within the providence of God, these three gifts of Orient are bearing knowledge of the gospel of the God-man who came to die to be the savior of souls. What do you think? I'm, I'm going that direction. I think it's there. And then having been warned by God, let's wrap this up in a dream. Here's how God's been communicating with them, it seems, even from many hundreds of years. Not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. What do we see about these Magi? When God speaks, what do they do? They listen and obey. They trust and Obey, because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust, listen, and obey. They weren't just professional hearers of the word. They became professional practitioners of what God told them to do because they saw God do some things through Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that no other God could do, and they'd never seen any other God do anything like that before and never will again, nor had they. And they paid attention and paid attention. And God probably through dreams said, I'm going to send you a star. It's going to be a cosmic star, a sign. Follow it. And I'm going to tell you exactly when to do it. Next week, we're going to pick back up right here. And we're going to pick up on this theme. And there's some things next week that are just absolutely astounding buried within the text of Matthew chapter 2. You don't want to miss it. I promise you that. So why don't you grab somebody that needs to hear this good stuff and drag them with you. It'll make them wise and civilized. Are we, here to, are we here to obey King Jesus? Without question. Because he's the king from heaven. He is deity. And he came to die. But he's coming again. The mystery of the church age. Revealed.